If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again. To the 17th chapter of Luke, Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke, uh, where Luke instructs us about uh, about the life of ministry of Jesus Christ, that he might, that we who are the readers might know the truth, uh, might know have assurance of the truth of that which we've learned about Jesus, because it's not only been told to us by others, but we read it in God's Word. So hopefully your faith will be strengthened, that you will know more of Jesus, that your confidence in Him would be increased, and that you would love Him more as. As we look to his word this morning, uh, Luke 17, 1 to 10. I'll read the text within the sermon uh, this today. Let's go learn prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your truths that sanctify us, that give us life, that teach us about your will, teach us about your ways. We pray, Lord, that you were, your spirit would go before us and fill us. And use your, so that use your word to teach us your desire for us. And use your spirit, Lord, cause your spirit to, to convict us of sin, to convict us of areas where we need to grow, we need to improve, we need to confess. And help us, Lord, to walk in dependence upon you as we follow and obey your word. And Lord, as we do so, we do so not because we have to, but because we want to, because this is our delight, even as it is our duty. Thank you, God, for sending us Jesus. And thank you for your, the sacrifice of your son. And as we draw near to your word now, help us to see more of you through your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. From Luke chapter 14 and on, uh, Dr. Luke, the author, has been recording for us an alternating discourse. It's between Jesus and his disciples and Jesus and his detractors, primarily the the scribes and the Pharisees. And by by this alternating discourse, it intentionally and effectively causes the reader of the gospel, us, other Christians, to examine our own lives, to see if we are more like the Pharisees or more like the disciples that Jesus receives and welcomes. Just as a bit of review for us, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, at a dinner with Pharisees, Jesus warns them, those Pharisees, of the danger of missing out on the kingdom of God. Because, why? Because they ultimately put themselves first. Then in chapter 14, verse 25 to 35, Jesus calls his disciples to put him first over all things in their lives. Alternating back to the, to the Pharisees in chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. To the Pharisees to convey God's delight over sinners who repent and to warn them of the danger of missing the kingdom. Then, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, Jesus returns to his disciples, instructing them to serve God with their wealth. 
Then back to the Pharisees in chapter 16, verse 14 to 31. Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their love of money that neglected others in their lives. And so it is fitting then that Jesus turns back to his disciples. Here in chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. These disciples who had been following him and listening to his words to them, but also had been following him and listening to his words to the Pharisees, are starting to see that the Pharisees are not the kind of people that will enter the kingdom of God. Instead, it's the repentant sinners who put Jesus first in all areas of their lives. And so in this final section before changing uh, to a different setting, Luke records this final set of instructions for his disciples in contrast to the way of the Pharisees. It's a, it's almost a, it's, uh, it's a challenging text because it's almost like there's, he gives four quick brief commands and instructions that at first seem unrelated, but they are related. And it's a, it's a way for Jesus to finalize and summarize uh, the way of life that he wants his disciples to live in contrast to the Pharisees. This passage effectively equips believers to serve the Lord as his humble servants and not like the Pharisees. So as an outline today, we're going to look at four instructions, four instructions for Jesus' disciples to guard ourselves from so that we would not become like the Pharisees. But that would be the kind of disciples that he wants us to be. Four instructions for Jesus' disciples to guard from becoming like the Pharisees who do not inherit the kingdom of God. But let's be disciples that do inherit the kingdom of God. So, uh, let's look at these four, uh, four points and four instructions, four instructions for us today. Number one, if you are a disciple of Christ, Jesus tells us, then you will guard from stumbling others. You will guard from stumbling others. For, by the way, the first two points are going to be focused horizontally in relationship to others. And the second two points are going to be focused on the vertical relationship, our relationship with God. So the first point is, you will guard yourself from stumbling others. Verses 1 through 3, uh, first part of 3. We read this in the, in the scriptures. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Notice that Jesus is once again addressing his disciples here. It is those who have been following him around, listening to his words, those who have been professing to be his students, his lear learners, those who have been uh, following his ways, his instructions. The main command here is found in verse 3. Be on your guard. It literally, literally translates as, pay attention to yourselves. The command in the Gospels is often translated as, the word beware. In fact, back to chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus had warned the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Later in chapter 20, verse 46, he will again warn them to beware of the scribes. But here, he warns them to beware of their own lives. This is a instructions about, about a warning. This is a warning. It communicates a need to watch out for danger in our lives. Considering the warning, 
that we find here in verse 1 to 2, and the instruction in verse 3 to 4, the command in, in the first part of verse 3 seems to fit better contextually with what precedes in verse 1 and 2. So what is it that disciples then are to pay attention to themselves about? What are they to beware about? What are they to guard themselves about? The answer is being a stumbling block to others. That's what we're to watch out for. Jesus makes clear at the very beginning in verse 1 that stumbling blocks in life are inevitable. The word for stumbling block can refer to something that gives offense to someone or something that tempts someone to sin. The context here in the immediate verses, particularly regarding sin and forgiving sins, rebuking sin, would point to the latter definition. That to be a stumbling block here to others is to tempt others to sin. Jesus is saying that temptations to sin are inevitable in this life. In particular, in, in this context, it is enticement to apostasy and false belief. It is false doctrine that, that leads others away from the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty of. Back in chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus had condemned the scribes for hindering others from entering the kingdom with their traditions. Now, certainly we could apply this warning of, of not being a, a stumbling block and not causing tempting others to sin in a general broad way. That yes, it, it's not good to, to tempt others to sin, to, to tempt others to, to uh, get drunk with you or to, or to, uh, to uh, malign someone else or to, to lie or to steal with you. But Jesus is specifically here condemning those who teach false doctrines and lead others away from the kingdom. To lead others to eternal judgment in hell, according to Jesus, is deserving of great judgment. And Jesus states in verse 2 that it would be better for such a person to have a large millstone. A millstone was used to grind grain. It was this huge, giant stone. They would have actually two stones, one on top, one below. And then they would put grain in between and they would get a donkey or some animal to pull the grain stone, so that the, the millstone so they would grind the, the wheat. It's like taking this huge millstone and they, usually there'd be a hole where they can pour the grain in. Say, put that around your neck and then be thrown into the sea. You just think about that. It reminds us of some of the, the mafia movies we've seen or mafia shows we've seen, you know, like, uh, you know, having, putting a concrete on their feet and then just being, or chip, and then thrown into the o- ocean. Well, that's kind of the picture here. And this big millstone just being, it's, it's inevitable death. And as terrible as that kind of death is, basically a, a death by drowning, Jesus says, it's better if you die this way than to cause one of his little ones, basically, to stumble. And he uses the word little ones to refer to believers. And that's how it is. That's how heinous it is. It's like when you and I, we hear stories about people harming children. We just heard some news about 30-some children being found, uh, you know, uh, uh, held in captivity by some people out in Georgia. Like, that's crazy. It's it's terrible. It's despicable when people hurt children. It's despicable when people hurt children, whether born or unborn, in fact. And we get upset about that. We get angry about that. Well, God is angry. God, God is upset when people harm his little children in the same way. In fact, it's, it would be better for you. And so he said, that's why Jesus said, it's better if you just have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown in the sea than for you to cause one of his little ones to stumble. 
we must guard ourselves from being a stumbling block to others in our teaching, in our beliefs, in what we actually, what we actually tell others. How much more terrible, and you can just imagine, is the judgment that awaits for those who lead, lead his children astray. But you and I know that Christendom is full of false teachers. We see them a lot of times on TVs. On TV. Oh, well. And the many of prosperity gospel preachers that are out there. But there are a lot of false teachers not, not part of the prosperity gospel movement in mainstream churches, and yes, even in evangelical churches. It's the kind of teachers that are the cause, if you read recently in the news, the cause that leads to 30% of evangelicals in a recent Ligonier ministry survey believing that Jesus was a good teacher but was not God. How is that even possible that evangelicals, and this is, kind of, this is not mainline, this is, these are evangelicals who believe that Jesus is just simply a good teacher but not God. To deny the deity of Christ is a damning doctrine. People don't just pick that up on themselves. They pick it up from their teach, the teachers, those who teach them. But Jesus, as you, if you don't know, He not only is the Son of God, but He is, the, he is God, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We, especially those of us who are teachers of God's Word, must pay attention to ourselves that we are not guilty of teaching something similar like that. That we're not leading others astray through, through something that we're teaching or something that we're neglecting to teach even. It may not be as blatant as denying the deity of Christ. It could be simply as subtle as adding a legalistic tradition so that it causes God's people to think that they need to do this X, Y, or Z in order to be in right standing with God. Those that are guilty must be rebuked. Which leads to our second instruction. That is, if you are a disciple of Christ, then you will rebuke and forgive others. Latter half of verse 3 reads this. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents... Forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. As Christians, as followers of Christ, you and I, we have an obligation to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a not an optional thing, though we often treat it like it is. But our obligation is that when our brother or sister sins, Jesus commands you and me to rebuke them for their sins. Whether they are the ones teaching, uh, whose teaching or conduct has led others into sin, or whether they are the ones who were led into sin, we have an obligation to rebuke them when they are in sin. You are to gently, humbly, privately point out their sin. Some, of course, many of us, in fact, hesitate to do this. Uh, we, many of us, most of us, are avoid conflict. We don't like to do it. Because maybe we might say it feels unloving to tell someone 
that they're in sin. But if someone in your family is doing something that is dangerous to their life, would you tell them so? Would you warn your child? Would you warn your dad or mom? Would you warn your spouse? I hope so, because you love them. I know parents of young children do it several times a day. We do it because we love them, not because we hate them. It's our duty to look out for their welfare. Similarly, the church is a family, a household. And out of loving duty to one another, we should point out sin in the life of our fellow brothers and sisters. Because if unchecked, it will endanger their souls. It will lead them farther and farther away from God. Almost every time people leave a church, it's usually because of sin. Their own sin or the sins of others. They go unchecked. There's a necessary second there's a necessary second duty that comes with rebuking others that Jesus teaches us, and that is forgiving others. You see, if a brother repents and acknowledges the sin and turns away from their sin, then our duty then is to forgive them. We're to treat them as if it did not happen. We're not to punish them or shun them. The Pharisees, in contrast, were good at shunning those who sinned. And certainly there is biblical instruction for how a community, the believing community, is to relate to those who are in unrepentant sin. But when a sinner repents, the Pharisees continue to shun and treat them as if they were still guilty, as if they were still sinners. It's why they stumbled over Jesus when he came to call sinners to repentance and welcomed them into the kingdom. They could not forgive those sinners. In verse 4, Jesus makes the matter even more personal. He says, it's not only if, they, if the person sins that you rebuke that you, and repents, but not only if they sin against you and repent. It's now a sin against you. It's personal sin. If someone sins against you, and, but they repent, you must forgive them. Then he adds on top of it, he says, if he sins against you seven times a day, it's a figure, that's a figurative number for repeated sins, and they repent each time, you must forgive. Of course, someone who repeatedly sins against you is going to touch a nerve in our lives, right? It's going to be a little irritating. You're going to be like uh, upset again. You know, we're going to think. You know, uh, we often, you know, in our in our culture, uh, we kind of have like a certain amount of opportunities before people are kind of out of luck. Um, usually, it's three times. And um, but Jesus is saying seven times. In fact, in other places, he's going to say seven times seven, 49 times. The, it's really not a really matter of how many times, but, but a question of that, a picture of that you would, an infinite amount of times, forgive them if they repent. When someone sins against you, right, and they repeatedly sin against you, you kind of start wondering if they're, and even if they say they're sorry or say they're repentant, you kind of start wondering if their repentance is genuine. You may not trust them in the same way, and that's understandable. But the Lord, nevertheless, calls you to forgive. And while forgiving, 
so many times may be hard. It isn't so hard when we remember that we're forgiving a family member. In our families, in your families, I hope you've learned to forgive one another when your siblings or your parents or your children or your spouse sins against you. I hope when they come and say, I'm sorry, I hope you've forgiven them. I hope you say, yes, I forgive you, I love you. As followers of Christ, we need to take sin seriously and reprove one another when we witness it. But we must be, be even more quickly forgiving when there is repentance. For we too are forgiven by God every time we repent, right? There's an old saying my father used to like to say, quote, he said, and uh, but it's familiar to many of us, to err is human, to forgive is divine. So the ability to forgive others who sin repeatedly against us is a difficult task. It's in our sinfulness an impossible task, in fact. And it needs and requires a dependence upon the Lord, divine help, which leads to the third instruction that we find here in our text. If you are a disciple of Christ, then according to verse 5 to 6, we need to see that Jesus teaches that you will depend on the Lord. You note here that the change now is focused on the disciples' focus in relationship with God, the vertical relationship. Verse 5 and 6, we read this. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Notice that uh, while Jesus addressed the general group of disciples, it is now the apostles, the twelve, that speak and respond to Jesus. And you can almost hear them saying, you, you want us to rebuke those who are stumbling blocks? You, you mean the Pharisees? You want us to rebuke the religious leaders? It's like saying, you want us to go and rebuke the pastors and the elders? On top of that, you, you want us to forgive them if they repent? Those, these who have been nothing but a thorn in the side of you, throughout your ministry, Lord? See, the apostles <clears throat> rightly realize the difficult task that Jesus is asking of them. And so in response, the apostles asked Jesus to increase their faith, add to their faith, in their minds, it is a question of that they don't have enough faith to do this. If only Jesus would add to their faith, then they would be able to do what Jesus has asked. But Jesus' response is a gentle correction to the apostles. Instead of granting the request for more faith, a matter of quantity, Jesus focuses on the power of faith, a matter of quality. He says, if you had faith like a mustard seed. That is, if you have a, even a tiny, small amount of faith, as small as one of the tiniest seeds in the, in the Middle East, it would be enough to do great things for the Lord. Jesus illustrates this with a picture. He says, if you have even the smallest of faith, 
You could speak to a mulberry tree. A mulberry tree were trees that uh, grew, uh, that were common in the Middle East. At that time, it, I think uh, many believe it's the black mulberry tree. And they have little fruits that grow and mulberries. You could eat them. They were used, they were, had health benefits and things like that, you know. Um, but anyways, it grows up to 30 feet tall. And it grows 30 feet tall and it has this extensive root system. It grows far and broad as well as grows deep in different, in certain places. And thus, the tree had a long lifespan. But Jesus says, if you could speak to such a tree, a mulberry tree, tell it to uproot itself, roots and all, and then be, not notice, it's not thrown into the sea, but be planted in the sea. Planted in the sea. It would obey. Now the picture of a tree uprooting itself because simply because you told it to, is already amazing and would be uh, miraculous. But then to plant itself in the sea, to actually plant itself where it would continue growing, is beyond imagination. It, it's, it's just, it's, it's too far out. Now, is Jesus actually telling, teaching us that if we have faith, we can, make tree, we, can, we can make trees start growing in the ocean? You know, from, you just tell, oh, yeah, lemon tree, I want you to go and, Plant yourself in the ocean. I have faith in God. Go do it. And, you know, it's kind of like a new form of power evangelism. Of course not. No. (laughs) Jesus is using a, a hyperbole. He's using a vivid illustration here of the power of God to do things beyond our own thoughts, beyond our own imagination, beyond what we could even think when we put our faith in Him. It's not about how much faith we have, but it's in who we have faith in. Jesus makes a similar point in Mark eleven twenty two to 25 Not about having more faith, but simply having faith. Mark eleven twenty two to 25 read, uh, We'll read the scriptures. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Verse 24. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you. Your transgressions. Jesus, you know, in this in Mark eleven passage, wants his disciples to have faith in God. And when one has faith in God, then they can do mighty things for Him. Now, is it possible to have more faith or to grow in faith? Yes, of course. Jesus wants his disciples to know that now that it's not about the quantity of your faith, but the object of your faith. Have faith in God. The Almighty One. The One who can move mountains. The One who can plant trees in the seas, if He wills. That's who your faith is in. If your faith is in God, no matter how small your faith is, then if you rebuke a fellow brother or sister of their sin, then by the power of the grace of God, they will listen to you. And your faith is in God, no matter how small your faith is, no matter how great the offense against you is, 
if a fellow brother or sister repents, you will receive the power to forgive them not just once, not just twice, not just three times, and not just seven times or 49 times, a thousand times, an infinite amount of times. That is the power of God when you depend upon Him. See, when they're rebuking or forgiving others, this is a task that ought not to be done in our own power, in our own strength. We can only do so in dependence upon the Lord. I've really been appreciating, uh, just even last week, but the series that Pastor Roger uh, has been preaching for us, just instructing us about how we relate to one another. And just, uh, especially last week's uh, sermon, which is so fitting and timely, just it's calling us, just in our age of so many differences, and so much uh, easily finding offense with one another, and all is trying to, uh, <laughs> to, to uh, confront one another. Hopefully, we're hearing God's word that though we have our differences and after in perhaps if there's sins and even if there are if differences are unresolved but hopefully if we're sin that we would be able to reprove one another in love that we'd be able to forgive one another when there is repentance. And that's what God calls us to be as disciples of Christ. We'd not be like the Pharisees. Well, the need to be on guard for ourselves, the need to rebuke sin, the need to forgive sin, and the need to have faith in the Lord are the duties of the servant of the Lord. If you are a disciple of Christ, they are your duties, your responsibilities. And with this in mind, Jesus gives one final instruction. If you are a disciple of Christ, in contrast to the Pharisees, then you will dutifully serve the Lord. Jesus begins in these last few verses, verse 7 to 10, with an illustration. 7 to 9 is the illustration, in fact. Look at there with me. It's an illustration, something that we're a little unfamiliar with today, but hopefully you'll, you'll hear what Jesus has to say. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Jesus uses the illustration of a slave or a bondservant, a dentured servant, we may think of it today. The picture here seems to be of a small farmer. Seems like he only has one servant because this one servant, this one slave, does all the work. Not only the work in the fields, but also the work in the house as well, in the home. And using three rhetorical questions, uh, by the way, slavery was quite common in Jesus' days, common all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, even in all the previous empires as well. And slavery was, the slavery in those days were were unlike uh, what we perceive, particularly our picture of American slavery. Uh, the, the slaves in, in those days, some of them had high positions and high, held high esteem um, and were quite educated and were able to have quite about a great amount of freedom. But nevertheless, it, uh, this is a picture of that kind of, sla- of that slavery in, the, in those days. 
In using these three rhetorical questions, Jesus emphasized how, how this slave in those days served his master. And he kind of poses the question, if you had a slave who was doing work in the field and when they come in uh, at the end of the day, will you, will you just have them tell them to eat, sit down and eat first? The expectant answer is no. Instead, he said, question number two, will you not ask them to get, change their clothes and prepare the food so that you can eat and then they can eat afterwards? The expectant answer is yes. Then afterwards, when the slave has done everything they commanded, do you give, just uh, express thanks to them? The expectant answer is no. I know in our days, we're, even when we're at a restaurant, when people serve us, we, our tendency is to, our cultural expectation that we would say, thank you, thanks. Uh, but in those days, as well as I, when I read somewhere, that in England, whenever royalty were served by all the servants in their household, particularly at meals, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't their custom to say thank you whenever someone put something before them, gave them food before them, gave them a spoon before them, put, put, you know, did, it, did the various tasks of serving them. They didn't say thank you because that's what the servants were supposed to do. It was, it was their duty. In fact, particularly, they were paid to do so. But thanking them conveyed, ultimately conveyed what they, that they, the servant was doing a favor for their Lord. When in reality, they were simply doing their duty. And while these practices may seem unusual by our, our cultural standards today, the illustration conveys the obligation of a servant to his or her master. So Jesus then takes that, this illustration and then makes his application point in verse 10. He says, So you too, so you disciples too, you apostles too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. As a disciple of Christ, you serve the Lord. Because when He died on the cross, He paid the price to redeem you from sin. You belong to Him. We all belong to Him. And yes, there is a sense that we are a child of God. But there is also a sense that we are a servant of God, even a slave of God. And Paul writes in Romans 14, verse 7 through 8, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's, all of us. We belong to Him. And if He is the Lord, that word means master, by the way, then we are servants, His. His servants, His slaves. So whatever He commands of us, when we do them, we ought not to do them for the sake of what we can get from Him whether reward or commendation, in the sense that we think that He owes us something when we serve Him. The Pharisees, in their observance of their traditions and rituals, thought that they had somehow earned God's favor, that they deserved God's salvation, that they were worthy of salvation. Instead, Jesus wants you his disciples to know that we ought to have the attitude that we are unworthy slaves. God has shown us infinite grace in saving us and making us His own. There's nothing that we can do in the totality of our lives here on earth 
or even in the totality of our life infinite to the future that would ever make us worthy of the price that He paid for us. None of us are worthy of Jesus. None of us deserve His grace. None of us deserve to be even His slaves, much less His sons and daughters. So when we serve Him, we do so out of loving duty. It is our duty to do what He asks because we love Him. A similar thing happens in marriage as an illustration. You know, out of love for our spouses, we fulfill our various duties to love, to submit, to cherish, to nourish, to respect, and so forth. We're to, we fill our various duties as husbands and wives out of love for our spouses. Is it a duty? You bet it is. Are we to do it? You are sure of that. Do we do so because they are worthy of it? Well, I, th- I would like to think so, but we don't do it because they are worthy. Even if they are not worthy, we ought to still do it because out of our love for them. We don't do, <clears throat> we don't do our, fulfill our duties begrudgingly, but willfully and joyfully. At least I hope that's the case. We don't do it to earn our spouse's favor, right? We don't love them so that we hope that they'll love us back. But we simply do so to serve them in love. In the same way, for, and that's a similar way in our service to God. Those who serve the Lord expecting recognition or reward or something back in this life are those who have a wrong perspective. Certainly, it's good that saints appreciate one another in the ministry and acknowledge the work that each one does. And yes, the Lord will commend His servants who serve faithfully when we appear before Him. But all, in all that we do for Him, we should have the attitude that we are simply servants of the Lord doing what we ought to be doing. We're just doing what we ought to do. We don't need God's thanks. We don't need God's a reward from God. He's already given us Jesus. We don't need anything else. And it's because of Jesus that we want to live for Him and serve Him. The ordinary Christian life is a life of service to the Lord out of love. It's our duty and it's our delight because our Lord has saved us. And It's not that we are worthy but it's that He is worthy of our loving duty forever. That's what we need to do as disciples of Christ. We need to be those who dutifully serve Him. As we conclude, it's worth repeating Jesus' command in verse 3. Be on your guard. Pay attention to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. Beware of becoming like the Pharisees. Jesus' followers shared more in common with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. The Sadducees were like the liberals who didn't believe in many of the things that the Old Testament taught. These Pharisees and scribes were respected people because of their outward morality and the observance of their traditions. But when it came to the things that mattered, leading people to the truth, forgiving repentant sinners, depending upon the Lord, serving Him in humility. They lacked sorely. And Jesus wants His disciples, Jesus wants you and me 
to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That we would be those who lead people to the truth, who rebuke and forgive sinners, who depend upon the Lord and serve Him in humility. Because these are the characteristics of those who belong in the kingdom of God. Let me end with just uh, three questions for, uh, for your discussion and reflection. Question number one is, does your life help or hinder others from entering the kingdom of God? Are you helping people enter the kingdom or are you a stumbling block to them? And how is that so? Secondly, is there a brother or sister in your life that you need to rebuke or forgive? Maybe there's somebody who you've seen in sin and, and you're, you're real good at telling others about that. But the Lord wants you instead to directly rebuke them. Or maybe someone has repented and you need to forgive them, but you're still holding a grudge. How are you then, if you, whatever, in either case, are you depending, how are you depending upon the Lord to do so? Because you, to forgive is divine. We need God's help to do it. And then thirdly, as you serve the Lord, as, as, a, as a disciple of Christ, is your focus on your own worthiness? Do you think about how worthy you are as you're serving what you deserve from God or earn from God? Or do you think about His worthiness? It's because He is worthy of our service that you would do so to serve Him without ever being recognized, without ever being acknowledged in this life. But you gladly do so because He is your Lord. I'm sure many of you do that already. And you serve and no one, no one notices you. No one acknowledges you. Pastor Henry doesn't even notice that you, that what you do. He's never once mentioned you, giving you praise. No one's, in fact. Most people just completely forget that what you do is what you're doing. But the Lord knows. And the fact that you serve Him dutifully, humbly, is a testimony to the truth that you are a disciple of Christ. And, and even if no one, though we ought to acknowledge you, God will one day acknowledge you, your faithfulness to Him. When you enter into His glory, He welcomes you and He says, Well done, good and faithful slave. Let us be good and faithful slaves until that day. Let us serve our Lord out of love for Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these final instructions that Jesus gives His disciples in His discourse with the Pharisees. God, we pray that you would help us to, um, to carefully examine our own lives, to guard ourselves from becoming like the Pharisees. Help us to be watchful and guarding from legalistic traditions that, uh, that add to your word. Help us to be watchful for um, a moralistic, moral superiority towards those who may not walk with you. Guard us, Father, from a bitterness towards those who are um, those who uh, have sinned against us. Guard us from thinking that uh, 
pridefully about ourselves that somehow we are worthy of, your, of you and your love. For Lord, we know, as Christ has taught us this morning, that we are simply unworthy slaves. And though we are unworthy, Lord, we thank you and praise you because you still gave us your Son. You still sent him to die on the cross for our sins. And Father, that is the most amazing grace of all. And so, Lord, we gladly serve as your slaves, your servants, because you have given us an infinite gift in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, help us to humbly serve you in the days ahead. Help us to be people, men and women, who rebuke and forgive when others sin. Help us to be men and women who depend upon you for the various tasks that you call us to do. And Lord, most especially help us to not be stumbling a block to others. We know that in this world, it is inevitable that they come. Oh Lord, please protect us from becoming those who would be a stumbling block to others to entering your kingdom. Help us through our words, our teaching, and our actions to be a salt and light that points others to the grace and kindness and love and mercy that is in Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself in the life of this church, your servants, so that when the people look at us, they would not see us, but that they would see Jesus. Oh Lord, we know we have much work to do. There is still much in us that needs to be more shaped into the image of your Son. And so God, we ask that you would help us to be so. As we depend upon you, Lord, to do the work of drawing others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Certainly, Father, in fact, right now, we pray that if there's anyone out there who is listening to our, joining our service right now, who does not yet know Jesus Christ. Maybe they're just seeking. They're searching. They're just here because someone invited them. God, we pray for them right now. We know, Lord, you love them and you, and you sent your son for them. We pray that they would come to know your love for them, that you died for them even while they were sinners. And that they today might turn from their sin and turn to, in faith in Jesus Christ who died for their sins that today they might know that they have forgiveness in Christ, have salvation in Christ, have hope in Christ, that they would become followers of Christ. This is a work that you and only you alone can do. We pray that you would save them now, open up their eyes now to see the truth and help them, Father, to express their need for you to be their Savior and their Lord and their God. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.